G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're going to have a conversation today about the art and perhaps the science of our Bible translations. A conversation about the Bible translation that you read and why there are so many different Bible translations and you might have a whole lot on your own bookshelf. And certainly when you go to the Christian bookstore, you'll see a whole lot of different Bible translations there. You might have wondered why Bible translations are different to one another. Well, it's not every day we have the opportunity to talk to a globally renowned Greek scholar and Bible translator who's worked on the very translations that you may be reading. Our guest today is Dr. Bill Mounts, a former pastor and Greek scholar who was the New Testament chair on the English Standard Version Translation Committee for 10 years and has been serving on the NIV, that's the New International Version Translation Committee, since 2009. Dr. Bill Mounts is teaching in Sydney this month and he's getting ready to get on a plane to come to Australia this weekend. Home for him is in Washington State in the United States. He actually has released a book this year. His most recent book is called Biblical Greek, A Compact Guide. It was released earlier this year. He is the president of biblicaltraining.org, a non-profit organization offering world-class educational resources for the local church, and he is our guest through this coming hour. Bill Mounts, a special welcome along to 2020. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. Bill, you know, when we talk about Greek and Hebrew and even the language Aramaic, uh, for most of us who pick up an English language Bible, these things are very far from our thinking. We just want to trust that what we're reading actually has some level of uh, foundation and credibility and we want to know that it's reliable. Uh, Your job's a pretty important Mm -hmm. one to make sure that that happens. Well, it's uh, these are all done by committees, though. So, so while I've been heavily involved in them, you can, uh, if, if the Bible were just translated by one person, that could be more of a concern. But when you have 12 to 15 people working together for years on these Bible translations, uh, they become much more reliable because they are by committee. Well, that's an interesting point to raise early in a conversation like this, because when you've got the committee, you've got a level of protection there for the integrity of what happens. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, if you right. only had one person, and now some people will know that they've got a translation that was actually sort of put together by a single person, uh, you know, their special way of of doing a a form of Bible translation. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of those that might be out there with a, a single name on them? Well, I mean, most of the ones that are done by a single person are pretty um, interpretive, and as long as you understand that, uh, they're good to read. Uh, J.B. Phillips did a New Testament, and it's a phenomenal translation. It's quite British in its orientation, 
Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't study from it. But it's good to read to to see what a very bright, intelligent person thinks the Bible means. But uh, I wouldn't, and so I mean, I enjoy reading lots of different kinds of Bibles. But I wouldn't uh, study based on something that was done by one person. Uh, although I, my mom became a Christian reading J.B. Phillips' translation, so I'm a little biased towards it. Okay, so when we talk about the sort of translation that you might use for study and the sort of translation Mm -hmm. that you might use for a devotional reading, they might look different, they might feel different. When you read them, they certainly are different. What are your thoughts on, you know, uh, the sorts of Bible that you might choose if you're going to do serious study and the sort of Bible that you might choose if you're looking for a devotional content? Yeah, I think if, I mean, I always think, and most people do, encourage people to read more than one translation. Uh, you pick one for your study Bible, and then you, you, you read other ones just to get a different look at the text. And that's a, a really, really good practice. So, I mean, I read the NIV. When I'm reading English, I read the NIV. Uh, I'm on the committee, so it's kind of important to do that. But I enjoy reading, and I like it a lot. But then I'll, especially like in the Old Testament, where I'm not, I'm not sure what something says. I'll often pop over to the NLT and an, another really nice translation. It's a little more interpretive, but they uh, they have a very good way of saying things that help me kind of, oh, that's what the text is talking about. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible to come back to my NIV or an ESV and make my own mind what it thinks. It's just really, it's kind of, it's almost like reading a, an abridged commentary on some of these translations, because you really are getting much more of the interpreter's opinion on what the verse means. Uh, let's get a little so deep. I, I think, Sorry, yep. I think the devotional reading is good, and I think I, you, you can, I, I remember working on my doctoral dissertation, and so I spent three years on this, and I come home, and I, I read it, uh, the same passage, in a totally different translation I hadn't known before, and I went, oh, that's a, that's a different way to look at it. It was helpful. And so I, I do like that. Uh, let me say, uh, when we talk about the different translations that we have, uh, some people will say, well, how can the Bible be a reliable reflection of what mm-hmm. you know uh, God has spoken if there are so many different translations? Isn't there room in there for things to go wrong and for people to get it all uh, you know, topsy-turvy and out of line and uh, don't things change over centuries? Uh, when we talk about the reliability of the latest translations, right. how do we connect those to the way that scholars and, as you say, committees are dealing with early manuscript evidence? Yeah, um, I actually wrote a textbook called Greek for the Rest of Us, and uh, it was basically learn learn a little bit of Greek, but enough Greek to, to be able to do Greek word studies and to know why translations are different, to read better commentaries. When I started, and I spent a tremendous amount of time comparing translations, I assumed that I was going to find the different translations contradicting each other, and much to my pleasure, I found that was not the case. What I found is that some translations, like the NASB and the um, ESV, and to some extent the the New Christian Standard Bible that Lifeway put up, uh, are going to be a little vaguer. They're going to be less specific. Uh, all Bibles are interpretive, but there are going to be some that are a little less interpretive. 
And then there's other translations like the NRSV and the NIV and the Net Bible that are going to be a little more interpretive because they're trying to get the meaning across accurately, and that's what accuracy is about. It's about getting the meaning across. And so when you see these differences, it's normally one is a little more vague and another one's a little more specific, but they don't contradict each other, and I think that's a really important point. Now, there's there's going to be, every once in a while, especially in the Old Testament, we just don't know what some of the words mean. Uh, We don't understand some of the metaphors and the figures of speech. And so there's going to be legitimate differences in translation because we're just not sure. It doesn't happen nearly as much in the New Testament. But um, that's the kind of the process. And I think, too, now, when people translate, they're always looking at other translations, too. So they have a history of their own translation to kind of hold them in check. They have the other translations to kind of hold them in check. And uh, these, uh, any established Bible now, when they vote, like for doing updates, they're normally super majorities in order to change it. So there's there's all kinds of safeguards built in place so that uh, people don't don't go off a little crazy on one on one way, trying to, you know, well, for, preferring their own interpretation. Uh, the committee really provides a, a real safeguard for that. Bill, so, yeah, there's a lot of differences. You're a language expert uh, in the sense that you're a Greek scholar and you're dealing with one of the premier uh, biblical languages, and so you've got a major role to play when it comes to uh, especially dealing with that language because you've got the Hebrew language mm-hmm. and you've got Aramaic language in there. And then, of course, trying to, uh, as you say, bring across the meaning from the Scripture into a language for today. Now, of course, language is changing in the present. Uh, some people will, <laughs> listeners will be able to identify that 20 years ago we spoke differently to the way we do today. 50 years ago it was different again. So language is changing mm-hmm. all of the time. So when we have a new translation version that comes out, is it an advantage then to adopt a new translation given that uh, the language today is changing, and so when you're trying to get that meaning across, actually the new translations mm-hmm. can be better than the old. Now, that might be contentious for some, but what are your thoughts there? <laughs> well, you know, what I tell people is that, you know, when we update the NIV, for example, they go, but you changed my favorite verse. <laughs> and I understand the pain of that. But then I say, well, do you want us to keep saying it the way you're used to it, or do you want it us to say it in a way that really is how people speak English today. And that's hard. I mean, when you memorize verses, you don't want uh, an updated translation changing it. But the fact of the matter is that English is in an amazingly fast-paced change right now. I don't know how it is down in Australia, but in the States, it's really changing. And for a while, it was mostly how to deal with the gender language. But it, it is really, really changing quickly. For example, uh, we're looking at the whole issue of contractions. And when somebody says it is instead of it's now, it even in writing it feels really odd because contractions are very much accepted even in proper speech. And so English is changing, the meaning of the words is changing, uh, grammatical structures are changing, you can thankfully finally split an infinitive, which I've always thought you're supposed to be able to. 
you can properly, in some sentences in a preposition, uh, instead of saying of whom, you just put the of at the end. So language and grammar is changing very, very quickly in English. And I think it's really important to, to keep up with those changes. I mean, the whole point of translation is to take the permanent, eternal Word of God and make it understandable in the modern idiom. I mean, the New Testament's written in Koine Greek. It's written in the common, everyday Greek. It's not written in highfalutin, fancy Greek. Well, Hebrew is a little bit that way, but most of it's just common Greek. And I think that is a good indication for us that our translations are supposed to be able to reach the um, average person on the street, for lack of a better phrase. They need to be able to understand it. And so you really do need to keep up with English change. We'll take a, mu- a break in a moment and I want to open our talkback lines. Listeners might like to contribute. Uh, there's been a controversy that comes up every now and then, uh, and that is around uh, one of the older translations of the Bible. And, of course, uh, a lot of people love to read the King James Version of the Bible, and some people are so protective of the King James Version that they want to resist uh, anything that might look like a modern translation because they think that somehow or other yeah. the King James Version is better than the modern translations. I wonder if, uh, and this might be contentious, and we'll uh, throw the talkback lines open. Listeners might like to contribute. But uh, what are your thoughts on that controversy that bubbles along, Bill? It, it, is, it is in certain areas of the United States, it is a very contentious issue. Uh, it's a it's a discussion that um, I mean some people may prefer it, um, but there are other people that will actually link your salvation to it, and that's the discussion that I've never found helpful. Um, I mean there are people that have told me that I'm not going to heaven because I don't read the King James, and that's that's just that it's just wrong at every single level. But it's, uh, I mean, King James in its day was a, a superb translation. I mean, it's 80% of it's Tyndale, so we really should say that Tyndale's translation was really, really good. But uh, the the language is just, that there's Greek textual issues involved, but the, the language itself has gotten to the point where most people can't understand it. There's a, it's a true story of how the NIV gets started. There was a businessman who was trying to share his faith, and he read a, a verse out of the King James, and his friend literally laughed at him, and he said, "What? what's that? How on earth am I supposed to understand what you just said? Yeah. And that was the genesis of the NIV, that the, that the man went to New York Bible Society and then the International Bible Society to say, we need a translation where I can share my faith and people can actually understand the English. So um, King James says a good phenomenal uh, effect on, on on the spread of Christianity. Uh, a lot of people became Christians reading it. Uh, but when you have phrases like superfluity of naughtiness, uh, people just don't know what that means anymore. Okay. And, well, that, and that's, that's part of the problem. <laughs> Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, you can join in our conversation. Our special guest this hour is Dr. Bill Mounts. He's about to get on a plane, come to Australia, and he's going to be teaching in Sydney. And uh, a an eminent scholar, a Greek scholar, 
and uh, was the New Testament Chair on the English Standard Version Translation Committee for 10 years and serves now on the NIV Translation Committee, has done since 2009. We're talking about the Bible. In fact, Bill has written a number of books. One of those, his latest one, is called Biblical Greek, A Compact Guide. So 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Before we take the conversation any further, let's take a call or two. Let's hear from Conrad in Carindale in Brisbane. Hello, Conrad. Welcome along. Oh, hello. Hello. Thank you. Conrad, what are your thoughts? Okay. My question, as I asked, is when you compare the new international version and the KJV, it says verses in KJV are missing in new international version. And also the person, people who wrote or composed the new international version were behind publishing satanic Bible, such issues. Could you kindly clarify my question? Conrad, getting into some uh, really controversial territory, and I know that Bill will want to address those things, so uh, let's get a thought. Uh, Bill, your thoughts for Conrad? Yeah, those are, those are two, great, two great questions. Uh, they're questions that come up all the time. I'm, whenever I'm speaking, those are the, some of the questions that I am answering. Um, Without getting too technical, um, the, people often say that there's 17 missing verses in the NIV. And first of all, they're not missing, they're in the footnotes. But what is confusing is you'll be reading along, like in John and Jesus of the Pool of Bethesda, and you go from verse 3 to verse 5, and you go, where's verse 4? And so it's it's common to think, well, the NIV left it out. Um, the NIV and, and all modern translations, all agree that the verse about the angel coming down and stirring up the water was never written by John. There's very, very good evidence that that's the case. So I often refer to these not as the 17 missing verses, but the 17 added verses that got added through the, through the centuries. And the problem is, is that when the verses were numbered, the, the Greek text that the person had who did the numbering had a Greek text that had that verse about the angel coming down, and so it got a verse number. Uh, we know now that that verse was never written by John, and so we put it in the footnote out of deference to the King James translation, but it looks like the verse is skipped when you just go from verse 3 to verse 5. So th- that's the problem with there. Uh, i got to tell you, in both, I've been on the ESV committee, I've been on the NIV committee, I know most of the translators on the other translations, and they're good people. They they love the Lord. They are very. Um, they have a very very high view of Scripture, and they would never, under any circumstances, leave any of God's word out. But they are careful to not add in stuff because if it's wrong to drop out, it's wrong to add in. So. I can see why people think that there's these missing verses. They're not missing because they were never original. They were added centuries, some of them, um, millennia later, actually. Uh, But out of deference to King James, we put them in the footnotes. But that does does get confusing with people. The the other question is a, is a very interesting question. I, I, I taught an intro to Greek class at a church last night, and it, it came up. And that is the whole issue of the Satanic Bible and HarperCollins and all this kind of stuff. So let me let me kind of clarify how this works. Uh, 
there is an organization called Biblica, the, the old International Bible Society, and they own the NIV. Okay, so they, they, they own the copyright. It's their, it's their private property they paid for. It. When the NIV was formed, they set up the CBT, the Committee on Bible Translation, as a completely autonomous organization and made up of around 15 scholars at any point in time. The CBT has complete control of the text. In other words, Biblica doesn't tell us what to say. We decide what we want to say. And nobody, nobody can tell us what to say. Uh, there's zero outside pressure, and that's not always the case. Some of these other translations um, can have pressure exerted from the publisher. Uh, there is no pressure exerted on the NIV at all. The third component, then, is Zonovan. And Zonovan is it's my publisher. It's, I've, all, my, all the books that I've written have been published out of Zonovan. I, I love the company, the pieces. They're my family. And... Uh, they have are the rights to publish the book in certain places in the world, um, Stott and have other places as well. So you have these three distinct groups, which is a really a neat way to do things. Now, Zonovan, a while back, was bought by HarperCollins. It was a really good deal. Zonovan was in trouble. HarperCollins came in and basically saved them. And as far as I know, and as I say, I know these people, I've been, I've been publishing almost 30 years now with Zonovan. Uh, HarperCollins does not exert any pressure on Zonovan. And they just, they, as long as Zonovan makes their profit, uh, Har- HarperCollins is fine. I do know the Zonovan people have gone to HarperCollins and said, look, in a totally different imprint that has nothing to do with Zonovan. Uh, you print a thing called the Satanic Bible. Can you please stop it? And, and for what I've not been part of that discussion, but HarperCollins has said no. So, but the thing that's important is that HarperCollins exerts no pressure on us. They can't exert any pressure on us uh, because they don't own the NIV. The Biblica does. So it, it's it's kind of a it's a difficult. If, if you don't know the facts, it's a little hard to put them together. But that's that's why whatever HarperCollins does uh, has zero effect on us. Well, thank you so sense? much, Conrad. And I hope that's answered your question, Absolutely, Conrad. Absolutely, yes. Uh, because uh, these sorts of rumors uh, turn into major conspiracy theories. And uh, as you've explained oh, yeah. that very, very carefully and I think quite clearly, uh, that can put our mind at ease because uh, it certainly can muddy the waters if a publishing company decides mm-hmm. to publish uh, books on uh, two sides of such a critical uh, debate as uh, God's Word and uh, what might come against that. So uh, uh, thank you so much to Conrad from Carindale for that question, which was a very important one. Let's take another call, and we're not long out from news. Let's hear from Sean in Palm Beach. Hello, Sean. Welcome. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Very well, Sean. Need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Uh, I just got uh, it's a bit of a controversial question, but there's recently I've discovered that there's three texts in the New Testament that aren't in our original manuscripts. Uh, John 7, end of that, which is the woman caught in adultery. Uh, the end of Mark in chapter 16, and then in 1 John chapter 5, when it's talking about the three that bear witness. I'm just wondering what the guest thinks about that and what ramifications that would have, because when I asked uh, pastor about it, 
he sort of just shut me down and didn't give me an answer that was satisfactory. So I just and not everyone might know the answer, but a very quick response, if we can, <laughs> from Bill. Yeah, the, these are the three biggest passages, and sometimes people will highlight these passages and say, well, obviously, if, there's, if these passages are printed in the Bible, not originally in the Bible, then you can't trust any of the Bible. And that's being disingenuous, because these are the three biggest passages. There is no question that the woman caught in adultery was not originally part of the Gospel of John. There is no question that the longer ending of Mark with the handling of the snakes was never written by Mark. And there is zero question about the Trinity verses in First John that they were added hundreds and hundreds of years later. Um, what we do is, I actually in the committee, I try to get them to put it into a footnote, and they said no, because that'd be the world's longest footnote. But what modern translations do is they they put bars above and below them. They sometimes put them in different fonts. They italicize it. They do everything they can to make it clear that these texts are not original. Okay. We're going to need uh, to again, pick up on this uh, after the news. But his question was about those verses that are in the Bible but were not in the original manuscripts or not in the most reliable manuscripts. And you didn't fully answer that question, and I said we'd come back to that. What would your response be to Sean just in completing the answer that you were giving just before the news? Yeah, it's just that uh, these are verses that are not omitted in modern translations. They were verses that were added along uh, centuries after the original Bible was written, and for one reason or another, they got into the King James, and so they became part of our kind of our collective heritage. And but it's a, in the last fifty, sixty years, there's been no translations that have uh, translated these verses. A really good example, and, and it's one that is, uh, has caused issues. It's First John five, and in the King James second half of verse seven, first half of verse eight, it's a strong witness to the Trinity. Uh, the, what John originally wrote was, for there are three that bear record, um, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And then in the middle, it has the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witnesses. And it was a statement that was put in, as far as we can tell, into a, a Latin version of the Bible in about the 5th century. Uh, and in fact, it was not even going to be included in the Greek text that the King James is based on, Erasmus's text. <laughs> but he he made a he made an unfortunate challenge. He they were they were pushing him to put it into the, the Greek, which again is the Greek behind the King James. And he said, "Oh, if you if you can find any Greek text with these verses, I'll put them in." And so some guy made them up and stuck them in, <laughs> and so Erasmus Trudeau's word included them. These are some of the kinds of things that happen in the history of the transmission of the text. But we know when you when you don't have any early Greek references to this verse, we don't have the early church fathers quoting it, um, when it's not in Jerome's Vulgate, which have been the main version of the Vulgate, you know that these are all verses that are not original, uh, but were added later. And I should say, on some of these verses, things... They're not added because the scribes were bad people. Sometimes they're added in order to clarify, you know, again, back in the John passage, and why was why is the guy lying in the pool all those years? Well, scribes said, well, I know of a tradition that says an angel will come down and stir up the water, and the first one in 
would get healed, well, I better put it in to explain it. And, you know, there's, there's things like that that affect additions to the text. But when, when you have Greek texts that don't have verses for hundreds of years, when you don't have the early translations like Syriac that don't have these verses for a couple hundred years, then, you, then we know for sure that they weren't original but were added later. But the King James exerts such a strong influence on our tradition that every translation, as far as I know, out of deference to the King James, at least includes these questionable verses, either yeah, in, these, in, these, uh, in the John 8 and Mark 16, in italics and smaller font or something, and then the rest are put in the footnotes. A wonderful depth that we're talking about here. And I can't help but thinking uh, that I would be encouraging people to see their Bible as being a very reliable document because of all of the hard work that goes through. Of course, I'm also mindful that as we talk about these things, as we do like to unpack on this radio program, uh, that there might be some who are feeling a little bit vulnerable now and wondering whether when they pick up their mm-hmm. Bible that somehow or other they're going to be misled. I wonder if you've got a... Uh, right. Uh, an encouragement for us here, Bill, that when we are picking up our modern translations, that actually we're looking at something very reliable. Yeah, and when we talk about the differences between translations, they're very, very minor translation differences. They're very... Most translations have a way more similarity than they, uh, they have differences. In terms of these 17 verses, uh, no modern translation includes them. And so you can be completely confident uh, in the decision, not of just of the NIV, but of all modern translations. Um, and um, there's several answers I was going to give. One just went out of my head. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's take another call. Okay. Wayne is on the line from Bunbury in Western Australia. Hi, Wayne. Welcome. Hello. How hey, are Wayne. You today? Good. Yeah. What are your thoughts for our conversation today? Well, um, I do have a question and a concern to uh, talk to Bill about, but I also just wanted to um, commend his comment about the validity of the Bible before I ask that question, because for somebody who's been studying it for a number of years now, it is absolutely valid and reliable. And in fact, I like the Bible acronym, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. Yes. And so uh, it, it's, uh, it's like God's own owner's manual. He made us. Here's the owner's manual. This is what you've got to follow. So pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, so you did touch earlier on the, uh, on the Trinity, and I've been challenged very recently to uh, show somebody a single, ver- a single verse that absolutely proves the Trinity from the Bible uh, beyond any shadow of doubt. And when I got very honest about it and, and studied through and looked, looked hard, I, I literally couldn't come up with one. Uh, you know, as you know, the word Trinity itself isn't in the Bible, but the, even the doctrine uh, I'm now finding hard to prove, even with a single verse from the Bible. Uh, Wayne, you're asking a significant theological question, and uh, let's get a response here from Bill, and then uh, we might talk about things like theological reflection and those things. Yeah, you're right. The the word Trinity is not in the Bible, uh, but you have verses like the Great Commission uh, in in the name, the singular, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, You have passages like in Ephesians 1 where you have all three members of the Trinity working uh, separately and yet together. 
So what you have is a trajectory in the Bible of um, the becoming of the awareness that, that God is is not just one, but he's also three. But it doesn't, all the pieces don't come together uh, theologically until uh, Nicaea. Uh, but the way, I think one of the ways to, to start the discussion, I mean, you, you pick up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or um, Bruce Ware's book on the Trinity, and they do a really, really good job discussing that. But one, one uh, interesting tact that's much easier is to ask, is Jesus God? And is he separate from the Father? And there are verses just all over the places that, that affirm the divinity of Christ. Titus 2 is the clearest one, but you know, all the way through Mark, he's the object of worship. He's in control of creation. He pronounces forgiveness. He does things that only God can do. And that's a good way to kind of get a foot in the door to say, okay, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is fully God. And yet he's distinctly separate from his Father. You have all the discussions in the Gospel of John. I, I, I do what I see my Father doing. I say what I hear my Father saying. And you, you have a lot more references there to realize that God is more than just a single entity. He, he has to be something like a trinity in order for all these verses about Jesus to be the same. So that's one place to start. But I really encourage, I mean, Bruce, Bruce Ware's book on the Trinity, uh, discussions in Wayne Gudem's grammar on the Trinity are very good, and they'll give you all the verses. Wayne from Bunbury, thank you so much for a great insight there because we were talking about one of those verses that was in doubt and it was yeah. a reference to the Trinity. So, yes, a systematic theology and an understanding of where God has revealed himself, uh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit throughout all of the Scriptures. Uh, great response. Thank you so much to Bill. Let's take another call. Rachel is on the line from Albany in WA. Hi, Rachel. Welcome. Hi, yeah, thanks for taking my call. What are your um, thoughts? I've got a question about the Good News translation. I've grown up with this translation and loved it all my life. However, whenever I have used it in Bible studies, it has attracted quite some angry dissent against uh, the translation. Um, when I cross-referenced it with other versions, I find it a very concise and seemingly accurate version. But what is your opinion on the Good News translation? Bill, on the Good News... Yeah, I think uh, I use good news a lot, especially in college. I think it fits in the same category as the NLT, uh, J.B. Phillips's translation, that it's um, it's uh, it's trying to s- convey the meaning of the text in language that's completely natural. It's called a natural language translation. And in order to do that, the translators have to take quite a bit of freedom at conveying the words to get the message across. And I think it's one of those things where you read it devotionally, uh, you you read a, a Bible more like the NIV for a study Bible, and then you look at the Good News Bible to kind of see how they express it. But understand, all translations are interpretive. Uh, you know, some people say, well, I want a Bible that's not interpretive. It doesn't exist. Uh, you, you can't even translate a phrase from Greek and English without some degree of interpretation. So all Bibles are interpretive, but the good news is a little more than most. And so I wouldn't use it as a study Bible, but I certainly would read it to kind of get a different look at the text and to see what um, those people think the Bible means. 
Thank you so much to Rachel from Albany. And before we move on, uh, the idea, Bill, of actually studying biblical Greek. And a lot of people who go to Bible college will have some sort of introductory course on Greek. But for those who are really Mm -hmm. deeply concerned about making sure they've got a literal meaning and understanding uh, of Greek language or even taking those other biblical languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, as, uh, you know, in the mix there as well. Uh, how difficult is it for ordinary people to actually pick up some study of biblical Greek? What are your thoughts here? Um, it's hard, <laughs> unless you have a real uh, ability to handle languages. Uh, being able to learn uh, any of those three languages well enough to sight-read them, uh, for example, it takes years, and it takes a tremendous amount of repetition and consistency in learning. And I, obviously I don't want to discourage people from doing it because I think it's worth the effort. Uh, but again, that's why I wrote the textbook Greek for the rest of us. It's uh, for those people that, that can't, you know, retain the definition of a thousand Greek words and, you know, about a thousand paradigm forms of all the different nouns and verbs. You know, was there something that I could do? And I said, well, yeah, I, could, I, I can teach people enough Greek to make sense of their computer programs to do Greek word studies, to read better commentaries, and understand why translations are different. And so um, I'm a little biased towards this, obviously. And other people have written books uh, in the same vein as well. But I think that most people uh, are would be better served to, to take that kind of approach uh, than to do what a lot of pastors do, and that is they, they, they have all the best intentions, and they... They, they're going to take full Greek, and they'll use my other textbook, Basics of Biblical Greek, and they'll they'll study and they'll work hard, and then they get on the pastorate. And all of a sudden now they're, I don't know how it is in Australia, but, you know, small churches here, they're mowing the lawns and visiting everybody and doing all the work instead of the people doing the work, and they just can't keep up with the language. And that's just the sad reality of, of the American church and, and how so often the pastor is expected to do everything and that the people aren't, aren't, aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So anyway, I'm a bit of a... Okay, well, there, you are one who that, has uh, done the hard yards, Bill, in all of the Greek study. Yeah. So with today's modern computerization, our access to the Internet and the ability to be able to look for original meanings, original translations, even a variety of different translations uh, by simply doing a word search or a Google search on these things, how reliable is that if you, are, if you have a basic understanding of what you're looking for? It, well, it depends upon where you're doing your Google search. I mean, there are some, there are many websites that are not reliable, but you can go to a place like Bible Gateway, and they have a, I think it's five dollars a month kind of thing now, where you have access to a whole lot of Zonovan books. Uh, any of those books are eminently trustworthy. They're professionally written, professionally edited, and you can get good help from there. If you if you buy. Uh, Olive Tree or Accordance or Logos' software, the books that you can buy in conjunction with them are reliable. You just, you gotta, you know, it's true of everything on the internet, isn't it? Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. And so you have to be really careful of the source and and where it's coming from. But like I said, if, if you have modest but significant goals, Greek word studies, 
read better commentaries, this kind of stuff, then a little bit of Greek with a lot of humility can go a long way. The old saying is a little bit of Greek is dangerous, and I don't think it is. I think a little bit of arrogance is dangerous. Okay. And I, I've taught people who learn a little bit of Greek, and then you know they're out there arguing with translations and arguing with, with real scholars, and I keep saying, you don't know enough Greek to argue with a Doug Moot. Uh, when you read it, you can... I can teach you enough Greek so you can read his commentary in Romans and make sense of it, but you, you can't argue his Greek because you don't know it well enough. Well, so a little bit of Greek and some real humility is a good thing. And uh, I think we'll be humble enough to know we're talking to someone who is speaking with authority on this and uh, wonderful getting your insights t- today, Bill. Let's uh, running short of time. Let's take a, let's we'll take as many calls as we can. Let's hear from Jonathan in WA. Hi, Jonathan. Yes, you know I I I love the uh, Amplified Bible because I, I mm-hmm. know a little bit Hebrew because the Hebrew language or the Greek language. Uh, the, we thank God for the, our uh, scholars that translated the Bible into English because at that time there was no vowel at the time there was also constant use to write the Hebrew, so it was hard to translate them. But they helped them. But yes, so there are many left out. Because there are some words that Hebrew is used one word, they get three to five minutes. But now they take only some of the version, get only one minute, and drop the other one. But I see Amplify try to try to its best. It get more meaning. It get meaningful, but some people stressful because it involves many words inside. So okay. Some people not let you read it publicly. Jonathan, uh, making a good point there. Let's. Uh, did you catch some of that there, Bill? As to, to, for response. I had a little trouble hearing some of it, but. Yeah, uh, Hebrew originally was only recorded with consonants, but by about the 8th century A.D., the Masoretes had added in the vowels. They did a very good job. And yes, there are some words in Job and Isaiah that, and, and other places that don't occur anywhere else, and so Old Testament scholars have to go to Ugaritic and the other ancient languages to figure out what they mean. However, the, the words are not left out of the translation. Uh, I'm not aware of any translation leaving out any word. Uh, they will do the best they can to figure out what it means, and if if, they, if it's really, really complicated, they'll put in a footnote that'll basically say, you know, the Hebrew's uncertain, or they'll go to the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and they'll, they'll pull from that. Uh, but I, I'm not aware of a, certainly not a single verse or phrase or even a single word that is not reflected in a responsible translation. That only applies to the Old Testament, by the way. The, the New Testament is a totally different ball of wax. Okay. Thank you so much to Jonathan in WA. Let's take one more very quick call. Simone on the line from Adelaide in South Australia. Hello, Simone. Good morning, and thank you very much uh, for taking my call. And lovely to hear from you. Need to be quick, Simone. What are your thoughts? Yes, all, yes. I just wanted to let you know that I have various translations of the Bible at home, but I found one that is very um, accurate, which is called the Complete Jewish Bible by David H. Stern. And I've actually uh, I have the Tanakh as well, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, both in Hebrew and English. And I found that to be very uh, helpful with regards to study and actually finding out, you know, the true meaning of what uh, the writer is trying to say. Because I believe we've lost the Hebrewness of, or the Jewishness of uh, 
the New Testament because it's been translated to help Westerners understand it better, I guess. Uh, Important thought there, Simone. What are your thoughts, Bill, for the idea of getting that Jewish cultural uh, relevance into a biblical translation? Yeah, I am not aware of really losing. I'm not familiar with the. I, I know the name of that translation you referenced, but I'm, I've not studied it. Uh, part of any translation process is to try to preserve the original context. Now, a translation like the NLT will not be trying very hard, but the ESV and the NIV really try to reflect uh, the original culture. Um, of course, the New Testament's written in Greek. And much of it is addressing a, a Greek culture, and so the, you know the Jewish. There's very little Jewishness in the second half of Acts. A lot of Paul's letters are to Gentile churches, and so. Um, but I'm 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 the, the scholars that work in these translations. They know the Jewish background. They love the Jewish background, and they they do everything they can to keep it in. Simone from Adelaide, thank you so much for your call. We'll have to put a line under calls, just a couple of minutes remaining for our conversation. I want to talk about what resources or where listeners might go next, Bill, for a deeper appreciation of some of these things that you've just brought to life so beautifully today. And I did mention a little earlier, your latest book is called Biblical Greek, A Compact Guide. Who's that for? Is that for scholars or that for uh, ordinary people who are just wanting to get some more out of their Bible? It's really just like cliff notes or crib notes uh, for my full grammar. I was going to say something about that. If if they if they really want to learn Greek, they should use Basics of Biblical Greek, which is my main textbook. Um, and then there's all a host of books that I've written around it. The Compact Guide is just a, a kind of a quick summary tool. Okay, so Basics of so, Biblical Greek is the really the one that you yeah. would point people to, and uh, the one that was released, your latest book, really is a development on that, a compact guide. Yeah. And uh, for people getting a it's hold just, of those, uh, are they getting? I uh, no doubt they can simply Google those, and uh, no yeah. doubt Amazon and uh, uh, all of the different uh, stores that people can access good books, right. they'll be available. But also through your yeah. websites. You know, yeah, the the best place to go would be the web is billmounds dot com, and okay. um, and I, I can explain what the there's three levels of classes, and I can explain them if that would be helpful. I think we won't have time to uh, to have a deep explanation, but I do want to then mention that website billmounts dot com. That's spelled B I L M O U N C E dot com. Uh, yes. There's also another right. website, biblicaltraining.org, uh, is another one that uh, is uh, your president of biblicaltraining.org, and uh, listeners might like to uh, visit there for a connection to you and to some of the things that we've been talking about today. Uh, Bill, just great to be able to get your insights. I know you'll be looking forward to your visit to Australia. Have you been here before? No, I've never been there before. Okay, my, well, uh, my my son was on the west side of Australia, uh, learning uh, Australian footy, and uh, and uh, so he he absolutely loves Australia and had a great time there. But I've never been there, so. 
Well, I hope you're not working too hard while you're here because you're going to be teaching while you're in Sydney. I hope you get a chance to have a little look around and enjoy some of the sites here in Australia. Bill Mounts, who's talking to us today from Washington State in the US, about to get on the plane to come to Australia. Uh, Those websites, billmounts.com or biblicaltraining.org. Bill, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you so much. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.